Hey, good morning. Good morning. How are you all? Good. For those of you who might be new, my name is Jason Coker. I'm uh, also a co-minister here at the Oceanside Sanctuary, and we are going through a series, a teaching series, that we're calling uh, Building a Community of Love. And so we've been talking for the past few weeks all about what it looks like to be a part of a community of love, how it is that uh, various passages of Scripture uh, inspire us uh, and inform us towards building that sort of community of love. Today we're going to be taking a look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24, an extraordinarily uh, familiar passage. I know that you've heard it a million times. Uh, Hopefully today we'll have an opportunity to experience it in a bit of a fresh way. Before we do that, would you just pray with me? God, we thank you for today, for this opportunity for us to gather in this place, for the relationships that we are building here, for the community that is taking shape here, and uh, the miracle of a community that is born and reborn over and over again over 150 years and how in a sense that sense of continuity uh, the community that's been here in this in this area since 1875 represents a sort of an unbroken commitment to loving our city to loving our neighborhood we ask that you would help us it's the latest generation of that to, to birth something fresh and new and good and vibrant and loving in this space. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. We'll actually go all the way through verse 26. Uh, it says this, By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Verse 26, let us not become conceited, competing against one another, or envying one another. Paul, in this letter to the Galatians, begins this sentence with, By contrast, because, of course, Paul is describing the quality of a community of those people who say that they are followers of Christ, people who take Christ's teachings seriously. And prior to this, he'd sort of delineated a list of those things that would be marks of a community that didn't concern itself with the teachings of Christ. And so he says, by contrast, As opposed to those things that destroy a sense of community, there are these things that build a sense of community. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And of course, we, I think, have a tendency at times to imagine these fruits of the Spirit to be sort of individual virtues, right? Like, that we are somehow perfecting our individual selves in our process of becoming Christians so that we are full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and so on. And I'm, I'm sure that that is true so far as it goes, but it doesn't quite, I think, 
go far enough. For I think you could argue that every item on this list is not an individual virtue, it is a social virtue. This could be debatable, right? But I, I think love, right out of the gate, is clearly a social virtue. I think you can absolutely love yourself and should love yourself, but love is by its very nature something we express with each other. We need another person to love. Joy is debatable, but I might argue that joy is something we experience to its fullness in social relationships with others. Patience. Anytime you've ever needed patience, it's very likely that it had to do with another human being. Not always. I often have to have patience with myself, but more often than not, when we talk about patience, of course, we're talking about our relationship with others. Gentleness, faithfulness, again, self-control, all of these things. It's easy to see how Paul is essentially exhorting the followers of Christ to embody or be filled with in their bodies a sense of these virtues that make it a higher quality of relationship between them and others. And this, I think, is exactly why he ends it with the exhortation for us to not compete against each other, but rather to be with each other. Paul uses an agricultural metaphor, of course, and this is uh, found throughout Scripture. Jesus was particularly fond of these agricultural metaphors. He says in John chapter 15, verse 4, Abide in me as I abide in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. It's almost as if Jesus and Paul were talking behind the scenes. Let's talk about this idea of growth and use this metaphor of grapes and vines and being connected. There is no way for the vine to produce the grapes unless it is connected through the branches. There is a kind of mutuality and interdependence there. And Jesus is specifically exhorting his followers to abide in him. What he means by that is to stay connected. Remain connected. If you want to produce good things, remain connected to me. I think a, a key bit of understanding here is that we cannot think our way into connection. It doesn't matter what I think about you, what my opinion of you is. I can think about you all day long in positive or negative ways. That doesn't mean that we are connected. Now, what I think about you, of course, has a lot to do with whether or not I want to connect with you, which I think might be another way of saying what I really believe about you has a lot to do with whether or not I take the time to connect with you. I think one thing that we have done in our particular time in human history is very easily conflated the ideas of thinking and belief. We've greatly stressed the importance of thinking. We believe that thinking will somehow solve all of our problems if we just think our way through and around and inside and outside of all the problems we have that we have. If we could just pick them apart and analyze them and probably understand their constituent parts, then we will solve the problem. But actually, analysis doesn't always solve our problems. Just thinking about our problems doesn't actually correct 
the problem. We have to take a step back and figure out how then to reconnect it to the larger context. Connection is required. And belief is what we genuinely, deeply hold to be valuable. It is the thing we really order our lives around. We can think all kinds of thoughts that we don't actually believe. And this is why I focus on doctrines in church history has not proven to be very effective at changing people's lives. Because I can give you a list of things that you can think about or even assent to outwardly, but if you don't actually believe them, it isn't going to change anything about the way that you live. If you want to know the difference between what you think and what you believe, just look at the way you act. Because you will always act in accordance with your actual beliefs. Now, I don't mean that in a bad way at all. I just mean to say that oftentimes, as human beings, like we're extremely good at bifurcating our beliefs and our, and our thoughts. If you want to know what you really believe, just look at how you spend your money. If you want to know what you really believe, just look at how you spend your time. Because that is what you really believe. And this is, of course, what drives our sense of connection. What are we making time for? Are we genuinely connected? Are we genuinely abiding in the things that produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness and self-control? I love some of the insights that come out of the Social Creatures Project. This is a compilation of social science research around the understanding of social connection and its impacts on our health and well-being. We've talked about this sort of thing in this particular series a lot. But social, the Social Creatures Project points out that research shows that we actually need three levels of social connection in our lives in order to be genuinely healthy. The first level of connection is intimate connection. These are the people that you have in your lives that are the most important to you, the people that you're closest to. They're your partners in life. It's typically up to about five people. Research has shown that most of us have up to about five people in our lives that we are deeply committed to. Now, it might be less than five, that's okay, but it's usually not more than five people that we really invest most of our time in. These are not just friends. They're our partners, the people that we have committed ourselves to the most deeply. And that is, of course, vitally important to our health and well-being. But beyond that, there is the relational layer. And research has shown that we all have relational layers or need relational layers in our lives of about 15 to 50 people. 15 to 50 people. These are the people that constitute our strong connections. You might say our friend groups, but it's really more than just sort of casual friendship. These are people who come to your aid when you need it. I don't know about you or your Facebook feed, but I have a lot of friends who will not come to my aid if I need it, and frankly, I wouldn't come to theirs either. Not necessarily because I don't like them or they don't like me. We're just not that close. We're not that strongly connected. But that group of 15 to 50 people are the people who bring you food when you're hungry and can't afford it. 
Do you know what it's like to be in a place where you don't have the resources to make your own food, either because you don't have the money or you don't have the emotional bandwidth to do it, and somebody cares enough about you that they bring you food? This is who we're talking about. You need people like that in your life. People who will bring you food when you need it, people who will loan you money if you need it. Listen, go with me on this. People who will babysit your kids if you need it. You know somebody is committed to you if they'll babysit your kids. Because listen, they don't like your kids as much as you do. They don't. They can't. They don't look at your kids and see themselves. They don't see their own like biological reflection in the mirror. They deal with your kids and your kids' bizarre behavior because they love you. And then they go home and they tell their partner, you would not believe what Jason's kids do. Man. Right? But they, but they love you. And they'll sit your kids. And they love your kids. They're your kids' fans. You need 15 to 50 people like that in your life. Research shows that if you don't have 15 to 50 people like that in your life, you have a lower life expectancy. You are more susceptible to disease and chronic illness. Beyond that relational circle, research has also shown that we all need a sense of connection to what the Social Creatures Project calls a collective. That we all need a sense that we are connected to something bigger than us. And that collective needs to be a network of common purpose of about 150 to 1,500 people. A group that you belong to that shares some sense of your values, some sense of your ideals, and you join together in a sense of common purpose to accomplish something good together. Research shows that if we are connected, not only to a collective of common purpose, but the more collectives of common purpose we are connected to, the healthier we are. So, you know, not just church, right? Like church can be this, but other things can be this too. Some of you are fortunate enough to work in a network of common purpose. And that provides you with a deep sense of meaning. And some of you belong to clubs or community groups or activist groups that are trying to accomplish something together, but that sense that you are a part of something bigger that matters is a part of our health and well-being in social connection. Now, now listen to this. This same research has shown that if you lack in any one of these three areas, you are susceptible to loneliness. We often think about loneliness as not having an intimate partner. But research shows that even if you have an intimate partner, a great relationship with one or two or five intimate partners, but you are not a part of a strong relational group or a collective of meaningful purpose, then you can and often will feel lonely. And I hear that here all the time. Listen, the first thing I ask people when they show up here is, what are you doing here? 
<laughs> I don't mean what are you doing here. I mean, what are you doing here? Because this is, as Joey said, sort of an odd group, right? And oftentimes what I hear is that people were missing a sense of connection to a collective of common purpose. They have a great relationship with their partner. They have a great group of friends. But they were missing a sense of being connected to something bigger and more meaningful. Or they weren't connected to something bigger and more meaningful that reflected their deepest values about God. There's a word for that. That word is loneliness. You can have a great friend group and a wonderful partner and still feel lonely because you don't have a collective of common meaning and purpose in your lives. This sort of place is meant to provide that kind of thing. Some of you have heard this story before, but years and years ago, Janelle and I were uh, uh, part of a uh, relatively big church in central Ohio, and one year the senior pastor looked around the table at the staff and he like challenged us all to do something different and unusual for Easter outreaches that year. And so Janelle and I uh, started a website. This is 2000. 2006, pre-iPhone, right? Janelle and I started a website called twoshirts.org. And the idea behind two shirts was that if you had anything extra in your life that you just didn't need, you could post it there and anybody could, anybody could have it for free, right? And we thought this was kind of a cute idea. Uh, and we required that if people wanted to participate in two shirts in order to register, in order to be involved, you had to post something that you were willing to give away first, right? The idea was you had to contribute in order to receive. So we you know, generated this little community of sort of mutual reciprocity, mutual giving. Within a couple of months, we had 1,000 members in central uh, Columbus. And within about six months, we had 3,000 members. And people were like showing up to church with like lamps and toasters because they were like, you know, giving things away to each other all the time. And pretty soon this like community of giving and generosity expanded beyond our church, and we had all kinds of people who were a part of this community of faith who, you know, sometimes were Christians from other churches, sometimes were not Christians, sometimes were like Wiccan, and people in our church would meet people on this website and they'd be like, oh, I totally met a witch yesterday, and I don't know what to do. And I was like, well, what did you do? And they're like, I gave them a toaster. And I was like, well, how was that? And they're like, it was great. And I was like, maybe witches aren't so bad. <laughs> Go figure. So all kinds of weird little things like that happened with this website. It was super fun. Uh, and then one day, Janelle was just telling this story the other day. It's what reminded me of this. One day, uh, you know, we check t-shirts every single day. Every single day, people are posting toasters and lamps. And at one point, somebody posted, like, a car. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. And then one day, I got up, and somebody had posted a need. Because you could post something you had, or you could post that you had a need. And other people could see that need, and they could fill it. And one day I looked and somebody had posted a need for a grandmother. And it was a woman, a mom, who had just moved to Columbus, Ohio. Uh, her husband was in the military and they had moved from somewhere else in the country and had no family nearby. And she had just had medically fragile twins, given birth to medically fragile twins. And she said, I just, you know, if I were back home, my mom would be there for me. She would go with me to doctor's appointments and she would help make sure that my kids were cared for. And I know this is a lot to ask, but I just kind of need like a surrogate grandmother. And within a day, this older woman who was a part of our church, 
who also had recently relocated. Her kids lived on the other side of the country. She said, I don't get to see my grandkids very often. So she accepted this person's request and she became a surrogate grandmother for this family of, of people who were isolated. And this is, I think, a, a feature of really good collectives of common purpose. Really good communities transcend our individual need for intimacy, and they transcend our need for friend groups. And what they do is they usher in a kind of ethic of justice and equality beyond their immediate circle. They're constantly trying to meet needs beyond their circle of familiarity, their circle of friends. I think this is what good collective groups do. They're always pushing those boundaries, meeting needs in new and creative ways. I think we see this in any kind of healthy community. Uh, I, I think what we have in this case is essentially an expression of love. And I know, you show up at churches like this, and eventually you're going to hear the L word, right? Like everything is about love. And we all get sort of tired of people talking about love all the time as though it is the answer to every problem we have. But again, lack of connection in our lives, lack of social connection literally hurts us physically. It's not an overstatement to say that cultivating more social connection in our lives, more partners, more friends, more of a network of collaboration, of mutual care and concern, cultivating that actually makes us healthier, not just as individuals, but together. And I just don't think there's a, a better word for that than love. We really are attempting to build a community of deep love and care and concern for each other. The other thing I love about you know, Jesus and Paul's use of this agricultural metaphor is that it reminds us of something else, and that is that whether you are growing grapes or trying to build a community of love, labor is required. Like, you know, every now and then, like some grapes will grow on the side of the road seemingly by accident, whether people intended to or not. Nature's kind of crazy that way, right? But if you want to really go grow grapes, if you want to grow enough grapes that you could make a decent bottle of wine or like, you know, have some grapes available for dinner on a regular basis and make sure that those grapes are like healthy and delicious and you're growing them in quantity, then you're going to have to get your hands dirty and do some work. Cultivation requires effort. We don't do everything, right? If you have a garden in your backyard, you know that there's a lot that you can't do to grow grapes or tomatoes or cucumbers, right? Like, you need sunshine. You need decent soil, which to some extent you can like, you know, try to make decent soil, but it's a little bit outside your control. We take those ingredients that we can't control and to that we add our ability to plant and tend and cultivate and weed and water you know, deal with the pests. Effort is required to cultivate good, healthy communities. I love the way Lewis Hyde, one of my favorite authors is Lewis Hyde. One of my favorite books is his book called The Gift. 
And in the gift, he tries to draw a distinction between work and labor. And I love the way he describes this. He says, work is what we do by the hour. It begins and ends at a specific time, and if possible, we do it for money. Welding car bodies on an assembly line is work. Washing dishes, computing taxes, walking around in a psychiatric ward, picking asparagus, these are work. Labor, on the other hand, sets its own pace. We may get paid for it, but it's harder to quantify. Writing a poem, raising a child, developing a new calculus, resolving a neurosis, invention in all its forms. These are labors. Labor has its own schedule. Things get done, but we often have the odd sense that we didn't do them. We wake up to discover the fruits of our labor. What Lewis Hyde is describing here, and he knows it, what Lewis Hyde is describing here is grace. When we bring our efforts to something because we love it, and time gets away from us, and somehow in the midst of it, something else is produced, because there is this sense that a power beyond ourselves has entered in, has inspired us, has filled us with perseverance to the point where the next thing we know, something has been created that is way beyond us. That we have co-labored, in a sense. And of course, what we mean by that in a church context is that there is this sense that this something bigger and greater than us is what we call God. That when we labor for something good, God enters the equation and produces something that we couldn't have produced on our own. It's easy to get lost in that kind of labor. It's easy to forget how many hours you've put in or to diminish the hours that you've put in because it is, in fact, a labor of love. That doesn't mean it isn't hard. That doesn't mean it isn't painful. But it does mean that it's worth it. And this is why women, after having given birth to a child and suffering through one of the most painful and traumatic things that any human being could suffer, they want to do it again very often, later, at some point. I don't get it. Labor is an appropriate word for it. Because it is effort. It is work, it is painful, it does involve sacrifice. But what is birthed on the other side is so full of love and joy that we can't imagine our lives any different. When we're talking about building a community of love here, I know it's cliche, but I do think we're talking about giving birth to something. And in order for that to happen, we need to put real labor into it. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for today for these words that challenge us and stretch us. We thank you for these images that um, invite us into lives of 
goodness and fruitfulness. It's our prayer together today that you would grow something good in this community. That we would begin to approach a community of genuine and authentic love. That we would experience the grace of co-laboring with you to bring about something that is full of love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness. And that you would do that in spite of us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Bob. With the pandemic, I don't know how many years I've been coming here because everybody screwed up with that. But uh, it's three or four years. And I remember, you know, the fact that I got the sense that all were welcome here. That was the sense I originally got when I walked in the door. And so I, I kept coming. So we're glad that you joined us today. You know, as you kind of know, there's a lot going on here. And uh, you, there are many ways for all of us to get involved. There's a book club. It's the first Thursday of every month. And next week, guess what? It's already February. Where did January go? So on Thursday, February 2nd at 6.30 on Zoom, a February book is uh, Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change. And that is by uh, Christina Bearhand Edmondson and Chad Brennan. Uh, in it, they equip readers to move past talk and enter the fight against racism in both practical and hopeful ways. So that's the book club this coming Thursday, the 2nd, 6.30 p.m. Zoom. Justice Works, uh, the team meeting happens Saturday, February 4th. That's the following Saturday at 2 o'clock. That's also Zoom. Put your faith in action with our Justice Works team committed to organizing for action on issues that uh, matter to the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized, truly building a community of love. Uh, let's see. Two more items. Dare to Take Up Space Women's Retreat. Uh, that's Saturday, February 11th, 9 o'clock in the morning until 4 o'clock in the afternoon at OSC. Uh, it's led by co-minister Janelle Coker. And this one-day women's spiritual retreat will help you uncover your worth and take up your God-given space. The $35 registration fee can be paid online or in person with cash or a check. And if you need any more information or want a two-way connection, there's a connect card uh, on the back of all the pews and there are pens as well. So uh, the last item is supporting the mission. So much goes on here that does require dollars. So um, there are two ways to give. One is uh, on a, on, in a monthly basis online. And it's a 501c3, of course, we are a nonprofit here. So um, if you can uh, consider giving a gift, that would be wonderful. Uh, OceansideSanctuary.org slash gift or you can scan the QR code, or you can go to the giving box. I think there's one right there. There may be a second. 
there was a second back there, it's gone. Uh, let's see. So, um, you know, I, I love what Jason said, you know, since 1875, this space has been a, uh, a connection of community, unbroken. Um, and the message I got was, yeah, we're all thinking good thoughts, but now it, it takes some time to put them into action and action requires work. So let's make that uh, connection and put it to action to build that community of love. And thank you all for being here. May the peace of God be with you. Have a great week.